We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. We're continuing on in our series. that I didn't really give a theme at the beginning, but now our theme has kind of turned into treasuring Christ. So we're going to keep that theme going. The topic, the title for our lesson today is going to be Treasure Hunters Unite. And we're going to find ourselves in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Last time we talked about the awkward topic of sin. The gravity of sin, the grossness of sin, and how to fight sin. So that was Paul's last topic. He, he told us to put off sin, but the putting off of the sin wasn't really the end goal. We have to put off sin in order to put on what we're going to talk about today, which is righteous living. But in order to put on righteous living, sin has to go. So Paul, Paul told us that we have to take sin off. In fact, the phrase he used is put it to death. Put sin to death. So we talked about that. We paused and looked at sin. And today we're going to talk about righteous living and how important that is. Did you ever need a large group of people to accomplish a task? How about moving? Moving's a big one, right? I just mentioned we're going to have a church work day and that will probably take several individuals just to do a small time move. But if you've ever done a big move, you know what it's like, right? My family, for whatever reason, has moved five times in four years. What is that about? It sounds like I'm on the run from the government or something. Um, since we've been in Pennsylvania, which was 2014, we moved here. We've moved five times. So I know what it's like to make that awkward request to people and say, can you help me move? Um, that's always a big step in, a, in the relationship, right? When you ask people to help you move, especially this one time. Uh, it was 2000, help me out here, Janine, 2015, early 2015. We moved into an apartment in February. And it was one of the coldest Februarys I think I've ever had in my entire life. It was the high that the day we were going to move was seven. Seven. And I'm asking people to help us move in February, and the high was seven. We didn't get a lot of people <laughs> that time. We only had a couple or two or three individuals help us. And you really know who your real friends are when you ask them to help you move, and they help you move in February. But moving is one of those things you need a lot of people to help you with, right? Because there's a lot of things to carry. There's a lot of big pieces of furniture that you need a lot of hands for. So that's one task. You need a lot of people to help you accomplish it, at least quickly, somewhat quickly. Here's another one, especially in my context of a family. Kids. You ever heard the phrase, it takes a village? It takes a village to raise children? It definitely does when you have five. Um, in Michigan, we lived near Janine's parents, so we had that little village. And then we moved here to Pennsylvania, and now we're near my parents, so we have another little village. And anytime Janine and I want to take the kids out, can you imagine what that looks like? Our oldest is six, and we have five children. And anytime we want to go out to a restaurant, we call mom and dad, and now Christy is home for the year. We call Christy and say, you guys want to go out? Want to spend some time with us? Actually, we just need your help to get out. So we elicit their help, and they come, and you got to picture this scene. We have like 10 people walking into a restaurant, and then you should see the eyes of the people looking at our family, like just over and over and over, going, what is this little commune we got here? And so uh, it definitely takes a village uh, to not only go out with children, but sometimes to raise children. And I know a lot of you guys are involved in your grandchildren's lives, stuff like that. So that's another thing. It takes a large group of people to accomplish a task properly. Um, one more illustration in Michigan, we did this thing called Black Friday evangelism. 
We actually uh, went to the, you guys remember Black Friday when it was like everyone had the same times that they were going to open their store and it was like really early in the morning. I remember that because I had to work a few of those. But when I wasn't working, I was in ministry. We actually started this thing called Black Friday Evangelism where um, there was like Best Buy and Kohl's and another, another store where people were waiting in line for hours to get the door busters. And we realized they were waiting for hours and were kind of trapped. So we brought gospel tracks, but we also brought like hot chocolate and little snacks. And we tried to minister to the people in line while they were waiting and have conversations with them about the gospel. But there were several hundred people we were trying to make our way through. So we had to get like eight or ten people to work this Black Friday evangelism. And it went really well because we had a lot of people unified. And that's kind of the point today. The point is to treasure hunt together with one another. And we're going to find this in the text. Let's go to Colossians 3. I'm going to read verses 12 to 17 and listen to what Paul says. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So my request today is to have more treasure hunters. If you see Paul is bringing out this idea of called in one body for one task. And that one task is to live the way God expects us to live based on what we've received in Christ. So we're going to do a little treasure hunting today, but I need every single person to unify in this one goal so that we can accomplish this task. And again, last time we talked about putting off sin, which is really crucial. You can't live righteously with sin in your life. So in order to put on righteous living, you have to take off this old, putrid, stinky garment called sin so that you can clothe yourself in better things. And that's where Paul was going the last time we spoke. But the end goal for Christians is not to just not sin. God didn't just place us on the planet to just say, avoid things. Okay, just don't do these things. That's not the point. Now, we need to avoid things. We need to avoid things that don't, please the Lord, so that we can do things that please the Lord. Does that make sense? So the end goal is not to just not sin. It's to live a holy life worthy of the Lord. But in order to do that, we have to cast off sin. But again, that's not the end goal. If you just cast off sin, that's not enough. You have to clothe yourself in righteous living. And we're going to look at several of those things today. And we need to remember this, that the goal ever since chapter 1 has been to live a life worthy of the Lord. Because we have to remember this one very profound, significant thing. We exist for Christ, not vice versa. Now, he loves us, and he takes care of us, and he provides for us, and he protects us. But Christ does not exist for us. We exist for him. And you can't mix that up. If you mix that one up, everything else is going to be bad and weird. 
we, remember, we must remember that we exist for the Lord Jesus Christ. So the goal is for us to live a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, as uh, Colossians chapter 1 brought out. And then those who treasure Christ Jesus desire to live for whatever would help them know and love Christ more. Because, I hope you guys have been learning this throughout the book of Colossians, there's nothing more valuable than Jesus, eternally. Nothing. And the question for us today is, do you believe that? Have you started to believe that? That there is nothing more valuable than Jesus. Living for Jesus. Trusting in Jesus. Walking with Jesus. Nothing else can compare. And several times in the New Testament, Jesus tells us to count the cost. Which I have this idea is he says, bring out the weights, okay? Bring out the scales. I want you to put anything you want, anything that's important to you on one side of the scales. Anything. Pick it. So put it there on the scales. It's going to seem weighty. It's going to seem like nothing can beat that thing. But then he wants you to place every single attribute of Jesus Christ on the other side of the scale and see which weighs more. See which is more valuable. See which is more important. So take the things in your life that do mean a lot to you, that you do spend a lot of time doing, put that on one side of the scale, and on the other side, put Jesus. And based on that weighing out, you'll notice something. Jesus is far more valuable than anything else this world can offer. And that's the point, to chase better treasures, to stop chasing the things of this world because they're not valuable. They're temporary, and they're sinful, a lot of them. And they take away from our eternal treasure. So Paul wants us to do another replacement. Change our treasure. Change our focus. And notice that Jesus is the most powerful, beautiful, valuable thing out there. But this is also what we're going to learn today, is that we need one another. We need each other if we're going to seek out and find this eternal treasure. It's going to take everyone. If we're going to reach the summit of Christianity, which Paul says is living a life worthy of what the Lord deserves, I need you and you need me. We can't get there alone. So will you help me move? <laughs> will you help me get there? Will I help you get there? That's kind of the question today. And therefore, if we want to reach the summit, we have to love one another. Love is both the means and the end of Christianity. So love is both the summit and how you get to the summit. Love. And we're going to learn that from the text, that love binds everything that God loves together in perfect harmony. So let's go to the text. Paul says this in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. And that's how he starts. But I want to pause and think about what he says there at the beginning. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and that's a really important phrase for us to listen to today. Because if we're going to put on these acts of love, we need to understand this one thing right here today. That we are chosen, holy, and beloved in God's eyes. Think about that for a second. Did you know that God specifically chose you? It's a doctrine we call election. That God looked down and chose every single one of you specifically. I mean, I do that when I, when I got engaged. I chose my bride-to-be and she chose me. God chose you. And really had nothing to do with your beauty uh, because all of us were sinful, ungodly creatures. So it had really nothing to do with that. It's just because he wanted you. But that's special. We need to know that. 
that God could have chose anybody. But he chose you. And really the only idea to know whether you're chosen or not is whether you understand the gospel and you follow Jesus Christ. If you understand the gospel and follow Jesus Christ, God chose you first. Isn't that cool to know? God could have chose anybody. Why did he choose me? Why did he choose you? God chose you. Everyone today wants to be loved, don't they? Everyone wants to be included. And they want to be significant in someone's eyes. You're significant in God's eyes. He chose you. He made the right choice. That's exactly what he wanted when he chose you. And that's important to know. Paul needs us to know that today. Because unless you understand that you're chosen, you won't live the way God expects you to live. But God said, I want you. I want you. And anyone, anytime anyone ever says that, it's a very loving phrase. I want you. And God says that to each one of us. So we were chosen, but we're also holy. And the word holy means set apart for a special task. Like God has a special task he wants each of us to do. And he chose you and I for that task. So not only does he want us, but he wants us to do something for him. And so he has this holy ambition for each of us. And so, again, it falls under the idea that you were chosen. You were called to do God's special work. And maybe you think that only belongs to pastors and ministers and missionaries. Wrong. Every single person chosen by God is a holy, special task. And that's kind of what we're talking about today, is to do God's holy and special task. And then the last thing he says is beloved. Beloved. That's what we just celebrated and remembered with Christ. He not only chose you, he not only says you're holy, he says you're beloved in my eyes. Beloved. I love you. I've loved you ever since eternity. I've loved you before the world began. I chose you before the world began. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Isn't that a good thing to know? You can go in and out of love with people here on the earth, but not with God. Once you're loved by God, you're loved with a permanent covenantal love. So he calls us today beloved. And those three things are really important for us to remember if we're going to live the way God expects. We're chosen, we're holy, and we're beloved people. You need to know that. Because no one can compare to that. No love on this earth can compare to that. But God's love is huge and special. So let's make our way through the things Paul mentions here that we should put on. Because there's several. I've got like eight here. Eight different things that he wants us to pause and think about that are things we need to put on, assuming we've put off sin or we're putting off sin. Because again, putting these things over top of sin doesn't really work. So you have to put off the sin so that you could put on these acts of love. And the first one is compassionate hearts. Compassion. Compassion really is the idea of feeling for the needs of those around us like we feel for our own needs. You hurt when others hurt. Uh, this past week, um, we had a sister, Carol, who she had surgery recently, and then she had a little bit of an episode, and she had to go back into the ER, the hospital, and that hurt, right? That, that hurts to know that one of, our, one of ours is suffering, and we need to continue to pray for her. But the question for us today is, do you feel for the needs of those around you? When my own son, Titus, recently, the last week or week and a half ago, uh, he went into the hospital because he got a little bit of a concussion. And so Titus had to go into the hospital and go through an array of tests to see if he had anything really bad going on. 
And every single time my child goes into a situation like that, you know what happens? I hurt. I hurt too. I would much rather it be me than watch my child go through something. So the question for us today is, do you have compassionate hearts? Do you feel for the needs of those around you? Not just go, oh, that's, that's a bummer. Too bad. And I'll pray for you. But to say, I feel for you. I hurt with you. Or I rejoice with you when something good happens. That's the idea of compassionate hearts. And we get that from Jesus. Because Jesus, on several occasions, looked upon his people while he was on the earth, it says, with compassion. And a couple times I'm remembering is when the, the people were really hungry and the disciples are like, send them away, you know, let them go get their food in the town. And Jesus says, let them stay here, we'll feed them. And he had compassion upon their need, not only for their physical food, but to give them the bread of life, which is himself. So he said, let them stay, we'll feed them. And that's when he broke the bread and fed the 5,000 with very little food. But Jesus also looked upon the crowds several times and saw them as sheep without a shepherd, didn't he? These people were wandering aimlessly, bumping into things, doing bad things. And Jesus could have said, oh, you wicked people, get out of my presence. That's not what he did at all. He looked on them with compassion and said they're like sheep without a shepherd. And you know what I'm going to do because of that? I'm going to shepherd them. And so he does shepherd us. So do we have compassionate hearts? Number two, kindness. I think you guys all understand what kindness is. It's a friendly, generous, and considerate action. Kindness. But kindness is profound. When it's done as a practice, it's profound. Now, the thing about kindness is the world can even show kindness, can't they? The world can show kindness and does show kindness. I've met a lot of kind people. I have no idea what their relationship with Christ is, but they're out there in the world. But kindness is kind of the bare minimum, right? If you do anything, be kind. We need a lot more kind people in this world, don't we? We need a lot more people willing to look out for someone who has spilled something or is struggling with something and to come alongside of them and say, let me help you. And Jesus says the ones who should be practicing kindness the most are the Christians. They should be the kindest people in the world because of what Christ has done. He was kind to us. He looked upon us and had compassion and not only said, oh, I feel for you, I hurt for you, but you know what he did? I'm going to die for them. I'm going to show the greatest act of kindness that the world has ever seen. So we need to be people of kindness. Go the extra mile. Do something that no one else would notice. Be the good Samaritan, right? That's what Jesus wants for us. Number three, humility. Humility really is, I think, confused today. I think humility, people have an understanding, or at least I did for a while, that it's kind of knocking down your own worth, like, oh, I, I don't... I don't matter, or I'm not valuable. And it's kind of like knocking down your own worth. That's not humility. You know what humility is, at least according to Scripture? It's the willingness to go low. It's the willingness to put you in a position to serve others. And really, the, the ironic part is it actually is knowing and understanding your great worth in God's eyes because of Christ, and then going low because you understand that. And the perfect example of humility, once again, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't knock down his own worth and say, oh, I'm not a big deal. He, he's the Son of God, and he kept telling people he's the Son of God. But Jesus put himself in a position to serve other people. And it says in Philippians chapter 2, 5-11, to that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. And he took the form of a servant, and he served man. 
his own creation as an example to us about what it means to be humble. And if you remember this one scene in the New Testament as Jesus is gathering with his disciples around the table and he took out a towel and started washing their feet. Washing the disciples' feet. And Peter was very confused by this, going, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, I have to wash. Unless I wash you, you're not clean. Unless I show you this, you won't understand humility. And humility isn't something the world needs also, because everyone else seemingly wants to go higher, right? Be in more lofty positions. And Jesus says, put yourself in a position to serve, and you'll be most like Christ. Humility. The next one is meekness. Jesus was a meek person. Even the people who didn't love him understood how meek Jesus was. And the idea with meekness is, it's a quiet, gentle, and submissive heart. This is the way I like to think of it. It's power under control. Jesus had the most power, and it was most under control. He could have done a lot of crazy things to people when they abused him and rejected him, but he kept it under control. And it's also this. It's not always having to be heard. It's waiting for the proper season. Meek. Are we meek people? Do we always have to be heard? Does our opinion always have to be uh, made aware to people? Or are we quiet, gentle, submissive people? Because when we are, we're like Jesus. And he had the most authority. That's the interesting thing about it, is Jesus was meek, and yet he had so much authority to do anything. But it was power under control. And he did it for the sake of those around him. The next one is patience. We know what this is, right? Patience is the willingness to accept delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. <sighs> I struggle with patience. <laughs> this one is hard, right? To accept delay, trouble, or suffering without getting upset. Not just to accept it and go, ah, okay, but not get upset about it. That's the idea of patience. And to see if you read the Gospel, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of says this phrase, let yourself be taken advantage of. If someone demands that you go one mile, go two. If someone steals from you, let them steal something else. Let yourself be a doormat. Right? Everybody would say today, don't let yourself be a doormat. Jesus says, no, you should let people treat you like a doormat. And show patience. And put your rights to the side. And when delay and trouble and suffering come to your door, invite it in like a guest. That's hard. I'm not going to say that I've arrived in this, because this is really hard to do that. But that's kind of what patience is. Is to accept things that are troubling to you for the sake of living godly. So are you all about your rights, or are you all about putting your rights to the side for the sake of someone else? That's kind of the idea of patience. Whatever blesses others. Number six is bearing with one another. This is kind of the idea of gently and patiently handling the difficult things that people bring into your life with kindness. Because there's difficult people in this world, aren't there? There just are. You're going to meet a lot of them. There's a lot of people that bring difficult things into your life. And the question is, what do you do when that happens? When people bring difficult things, difficult circumstances, or personalities into your life, how do you treat them? Paul says, bear with one another. With patience and with kindness. Because you were a difficult person to Jesus. 
It says in Romans that when, we, when Jesus died for us, we were sinners and ungodly people. We were always seeking our own welfare and our own betterment and not the Lord's. And yet the Lord not only loved us, he bore with us. He was gentle and patient and kind with us. And here's the idea of bearing with one another. Love counts most when it's difficult. It matters the most when it's difficult. Jesus had a lot of difficult people. He loved the ungodly with patience and with kindness. And this is another hard one because it's easy to love those who are like you or are easy to get along with. But what about the difficult people? Do you bear with one another? Would you bear with one another if it meant honoring the Lord? Number seven, forgiveness. Forgiveness is letting go of the resentment toward those who have hurt you. So they've actually hurt you, they've actually abused you, but you cancel the debt. You don't hold it against them. You don't resent them. You don't often bring it up, or ever bring it up, to say, hey, remember what you did? Remember how you hurt me? Still remember. Forgiveness is to say, I don't hold it against you any longer. I let it go. And this is a really tough one. Jesus brings this up time and time again because it's so hard. Because when people hurt you and abuse you, you want to make, you want to even the score, right? Oh, yeah? Well, then you're going to get the cold shoulder for 20 years until you right the ship. And Jesus says, no, I want you to forgive. I want you to forgive. Why, again, should we forgive others? Because of the enormous debt we had before Christ, before God. Enormous. So whatever anyone has ever done to you, it doesn't compare with what we did against God. And yet God removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. He forgave of them all of their sins. And forgiveness is so foundational to the gospel that you don't have any faith in Christ unless you're forgiven. Do you? God doesn't just take wicked people in and they let the, uh, they can stay wicked and continue to practice sin. He says, no, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. So do you forgive those in your life, the things that they've hurt you with? And if we don't, and we're accepting forgiveness from God, that's very inconsistent. To say, God, you need to forgive my stuff, but you don't know what this person did to me. I have to hold this over their head. I have to hold a grudge. Forgiveness. Cancel the debt of those in your life who have hurt you. And I understand those pains are deep. They're real. I'm not lessening the pain, and neither is Paul. But he's saying, remember the perspective of the forgiveness you've received. And then the last one, the overarching one that he mentions here at the end, love. Love is the overarching action of Christ-likeness, which seeks the betterment of those around us at the cost of getting what we want and deserve. Because the best love is sacrificial love is when you'll put aside something that you want or you think is important so that someone else can be blessed. And even recently, people have done that for us. They've sacrificed so that we could have something. And love is the overarching actus of Christ-likeness. In fact, Paul says, above all, put on love. So if you do any of these, make sure it's love, this idea of sacrificial love, because it binds everything together in perfect harmony. In fact, Jesus taught us that if you want to fulfill the entire law, work on love. Love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself, and you'll fulfill the entire law of God because it's all about love. It's always been about love. It will always be about love. 
So are you loving? Are you? Do you work on, do you focus on, is your one agenda throughout the day, if I do anything today, I'm going to love others? Because nothing is more important than love. Nothing. Not your agenda, not your schedule, not your busyness or your errands. If you do anything and I do anything, it should be love because of what God has done for us through Christ Jesus. So Paul mentions these. He mentions them specifically so we know what we are to put on and not just go, I got my own list. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate your list, but I'm going to do my own thing. No, Paul says, do these things. These kinds of things are what make God happy, what reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. So think on these things today. Think about, go through the list. I kind of had to go through them and go, okay, this one's I'm doing okay at, this one I'm not doing okay at at all. And I had to mark down which ones I need to work on, and I need to make a plan to love those around me more. And sin has to go if we want to love one another. The passage continues, and Paul says there's more things that we need besides just these practices, and we're going to look at these very quickly. Uh, The first one he says is you need the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ to rule in your hearts which is really the comfortable sense of God's acceptance and favor that gives us stability and security beyond what the world can possibly know. God's peace. The scripture says the peace that surpasses all understanding. It's peace that doesn't make sense to the world. It's peace that doesn't even make sense to your own mind. It surpasses understanding. And Paul says we need that kind of peace in our hearts, to rule in our hearts. Why? Because when we're at peace and when we're secure, we love better. We just do. When we're secure about who we are in Christ, when we understand we have peace with God, we'll be more loving individuals. If we don't understand that, we're going to be chasing our own stuff. So if Paul says, if you have peace from God to rule in your hearts, you'll love one another. You need that. And the only way you find that peace is through Christ by trusting in him and by following him and finding every ounce of your security in Jesus. So the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts. The next thing he says is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, constant thanksgiving to the Lord gives us this perspective we need to love those around us because it reminds you how much the Lord has done for you. That's what thanksgiving does. You remember. When you thank the Lord, you're also remembering just like we did with communion. When you thank him and praise him, you're remembering how much he's done for you. And then that spurs you on to love one another, right? So we don't really need the world's treasures because we've received so much from God. And when we remember that, when we think on those treasures and those riches, we go, yeah, I don't need to get stuff in this world. I don't need to chase my own glory and my own desires and comforts. I'm so loved by God. I'm so rich in God that I should love those around me. So thanksgiving gives you the proper perspective to love. And if you don't thank the Lord and don't praise the Lord, you don't remember either. And when you don't remember, you don't love. So we must remember. We must remind each other. And again, the Israelites forgot. How did they forget? God got them out of Egypt and got them through the Red Sea that parted in two so they could walk on dry land and they get into the wilderness and it's like they forgot all about it. And therefore, they grumbled and they complained and they started setting up false statues and worshiping them. And God says, remember, thank me, praise me, 
And you'll live properly when you do that. We'll come back to Thanksgiving here in a little bit. The next thing he says is for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. The word of God, the scriptures, to dwell in us richly. We need to constantly depend upon the word of God. Depend upon it, not just read it. Depend upon it. It's the primary nourishment for our soul. Without this, without constant dependence on this, we either starve or we get fat off the world's pleasures and sins. We must depend upon the scriptures. It's crucial. And he says, do it richly. Do it richly. He also says, admonish, teach one another's with wisdom, which assumes what? You're being teached, taught, excuse me. You're being admonished so that you can richly admonish and teach those around you. But the idea of richly is that you're doing it without this begrudging attitude, like, oh, I've got to read the scriptures again. Check that off the box. Get this over with. That's not the idea. The idea is depending upon the word of God like a source of treasure. That this right here has the words of eternal life. So is the Bible study, is devotions for you like a chore? Is it like taking out the garbage? Or shoveling the driveway or mowing the lawn, something like that? Or is it a treasure? That's convicting, isn't it? Because a lot of times scripture takes work. It takes work to get alone with God. It takes work to focus your mind. But when you do it, don't you feel better? <laughs> don't you go, wow, that was time well spent. I should do that again. That's kind of the idea. It's a treasure source, and we need to depend upon it. And the last thing he says under this topic is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to God. There's thankfulness again. So this idea is somebody singing and praising God all throughout the day, even to other people. And this sounds very strange. It's like, wow, if someone did that, that'd be very annoying. You know, like, dude, we get it. You know, holier than thou. Um, but singing psalms and praising God, it's like the theme of your life. It's like your theme song is that you praise and thank the Lord. When is the last time you were that joyful? When is the last time you were so joyful you started praising and thanking the Lord without a setting like this? When's the last time you had joy welling up in your soul because of what Christ has done for you? I've noticed this, that when we, are th we have this kind of joy in our life, we kind of act silly. It's like a silly, generous, joyful person. The idea, the illustration, you guys ever seen the movie The Christmas Carol? There's two versions of Scrooge in that movie, isn't there? There's Scrooge at the beginning who's a miser and a wretch and he's mean to everybody. And then there's a Scrooge at the end of the movie. If you've ever seen it, you've got to see it because it's my favorite movie. Um, at the end of the movie, Scrooge gets this second chance after this really scary encounter with these ghosts, these spirits. And at the last moment, he realizes he's not dead. And you know what Scrooge does? He dances. He sings. He's jumping around. He's twirling. He says this phrase, I'm as light as a feather. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. And I love that idea of Scrooge. And I love to, to illustrate that with what we should have in Christ. When's the last time you had that kind of joy because what Christ has done for you? Because if you realize how rich you are today because of Christ, you will act that way. And you will be silly generous. Because you can be. Because this stuff doesn't mean much to you anymore. What matters to you is what you have in Christ, and you know that you have it because you focus upon Christ. And then you'll start singing and praising and singing psalms and speaking about the Lord with delight in your soul. Why, wouldn't that be a cool thing if the church did that? 
this world would see something otherworldly and maybe want it. And the last thing he tells us in the text is do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father through him. Wow, that's a big statement. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that we are acting accordingly to Christ's commands. We're in compliance with his authority and we're doing it in the strength that he provides. Always. Always. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So do you have Christ, do you use Christ for everything? Or is, like we said a couple sermons ago, is he just a part of your life? Is he a portion? Is he just something you use on Sunday and when you need to think about your relationship with God, you need to think about Jesus Christ? Or do you depend and use Christ for every single aspect of your life? Because Paul says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means you're a Christian from sunup to sundown. Phrases in scripture we see like meditate day and night, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, is that who we are? Is that where we're getting? Where we're Christians from sunup to sundown, that if anybody knows us, they know one thing. We follow the Lord. This is a high bar. I know it's a high bar. But that's the point. If you remember the summit of Christianity is to live a life worthy of what Christ deserves. This is how. This is how. What's the point? Very quickly. What's the point of everything that Paul is saying to us today? Number one, Jesus is worthy of this kind of lifestyle. Jesus is worthy of it. Remember, once again, how bad things were for you before Christ came into your soul. And if you don't have an understanding of that, you need to find that today. Because once you find the salvation and the grace and the peace of God through Christ, it'll change you. But if you have it, remember, like we did with communion, what you'd be without that, or what you were without that. And remember the phrase we used at the beginning. You're chosen, you're holy, and you're beloved by God. Jesus is worthy of this kind of life. He's worthy of us journeying on to the summit of Christianity. He's worthy of the pain and the anguish and our rights being stomped on and us not getting what we want and us having to be patient and kind because Jesus did it for us first. And he wants people like him. He wants people who follow him. He wants people willing to go where he went for them. Are we those type of people? Type of people. Number two, we need each other. This is the whole point of today. We need each other to complete the race that is set before us. I need you and you need me. Love gives birth to love. If you love others, they will be spurred on to love you as well. And when you're loving and they're spurred on to love, suddenly we have an entire church of loving individuals who are glorifying God and making a mark upon this world. Love is the point. Love is the goal. Love is the means to the goal. Love begets unity as well. So if we're loving, we'll unify. And if we're unified, we'll love more. It's like a circular pattern here. So we need to love, but we also need to unify so that we can love more. So I need you and you need me. This is a big task. This is a big task. This is like bigger than a move, bigger than a really big move. We're going to the summit of Christianity and we can't do it alone. I can't get there without you. So we must work together. And number three, 
clothe yourselves with righteous living because that's exactly how we amass eternal treasures. Every single time you clothe yourself in righteous living, you invest eternally. You get richer eternally. God has a very cool system that when we bless others and we live for the way that pleases God, we invest eternally. And those riches will never go away. Never be stolen from us. Everyone wins when we live holy, but sin, on the other hand, hurts every single person. God, others, and ourselves. But when we put off sin and we put on holiness, everybody wins. Everyone, including us. So we must choose the better things and follow Christ's example. And this idea of scripture is pursue love violently. Violently pursue love. Those things don't usually go together, right? A violent love. Violently go after loving one another. So you're violent, but you're violent in a way that blesses people. It says in Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. It's like a competition. You're going to show honor to me? I'm going to show more honor to you. You're going to show more honor to me? I'm going to show even more to you. Because it's all that blesses Christ. The applications I'm going to leave for yourself to look at those. I'm just going to say this one thing here at the end. I want you to consider the brevity of life today. Consider how brief our time on this planet is. It's very short. It'll be gone before you know it. If you're already aging and realize you're getting old, you're understanding that. Oh boy, life is going fast. <laughs> boy, we're here a blink. It's really small, the time we get to spend here. So consider the brevity of life because that will help you. Fight sin to the death because you cannot live righteously unless sin is gone. So the practice is the same thing. Put off sin, put on righteousness. So fight sin to the death. The next one is invest eternally. Invest eternally, not on this side of the world. Those investments aren't going to last. The richest people in the world are going to lose their riches someday. That's not good investing. Good investing is when you remember you're an eternal soul and you invest above. And the way that you do that is exactly how we describe today. Next, remember that love accomplishes everything. It's all about love. If you remember anything about Christianity, remember love. Love is what purchased you from your sins. Love is what pleases Christ. Love is what blesses others. And love is what matures you as a Christian. Love accomplishes everything. And lastly, Consider Jesus, not just during communion. Consider him today, and this afternoon, and tonight, and tomorrow morning, and tomorrow afternoon. Consider him always, because when you consider and praise and thank Christ, you will follow his pattern, and so will I. So will you treasure hunt with me? by living the way God desires us to live. Because when you do, he's glorified and we're blessed forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you don't leave us alone and you don't let us chase things that don't matter uh, to you. You don't let us chase things that are hurtful to our souls. But you teach us and you admonish us to live correctly because when we live correctly, everything makes sense because that's how you designed us. You designed us to love you. You designed us to live holy. You designed us to love one another. 
And I pray that we'd listen to that today and remember and consider what Christ has done because that's every part of motivation we need to live this way. Help us do it together as a team, as a family, to go to the summit for Christ's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.